Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, we're fan, fan, fan after Autobahn. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, who is celebrating 50 years of Descendung mit der Maus. So, Simon, what does this mouse mean to you? Well, I think for anyone that moves to Germany, especially if you're learning German whilst you make that move, Sending with the Mouse is like one of the most approachable TV shows, Sunday mornings. And yeah, it's just a, a really nice kids show with the mouse as the central character, joined by a couple of compatriots. There's a duck who's okay, and there's an elephant I've got real beef with. The elephant <laughs> is, he's negligent. You've got beef with an elephant. <laughs> he's always creating something that someone else has got to fix, from what I've seen, at least. He's not very good at fixing his own messes. And yeah, I don't think that's really the message we want to send out. It's just creating drama. But yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere at the moment. This, this is an iconic show, sort of unparalleled uh, in German TV. And so it's not just for, for kids anymore. Like every child, every adult has been raised with this mouse. Uh, and so even on the main news at 10 equivalent or news at 8.15. They had the mouse superimposed in the studio and the host of the of the news did how they do the introduction of Sendung at the Mouse, which always starts with a foreign language reading out what is coming in the episode and then they say, und das war, and then they announce the language that it was. So she did hers in Turkish and yeah, it was, it was really nice. Uh, and then she revealed das war, Turkish. And yeah, social media was really, really positive about this whole thing. And everyone's like, oh, wow, it sounded really nice. I, I don't speak Turkish, but it did sound pretty lovely in her accent and her dialect. And I think for a lot of people, when they think of the Turkish language, it's not always necessarily a particularly positive thing. So it was lovely to see outpouring of, uh, of enjoyment and pleasure uh, at the fact that Turkish had been spoken uh, at the start of the main news on the main uh, news channel in, in Germany. So that was really cool. A very positive moment, I thought. I didn't know a lot about Descending with the Mouse, except that it, it is everywhere, it, not just because it's the 50th anniversary, but on a, a normal week. Like, you see multiple references to it, a reference to it in an email address, or they're using it as an avatar on social media, or when you, especially in Nuremberg, where you, when you get the U-Bahn, they've got the, the news screens showing the daily news and the weather and things like that. And they use Descending with the Mouse is like interstitial cartoons basically between between news stories i've not sat down and watched it deeply i've watched youtube clips but the the nightlight we bought our daughter was the mouse so it's everywhere yeah the thing that i think works so well about sending with the mouse and something i'd recommend definitely watching a full episode is that it kind of caters for all members of the family so you'll have the cartoons sort of bright colors the elephant and everything and the mouse for the kids very visually uh, stimulating and then you'll have maybe like a travel element where someone goes to some nice part some nice town in Germany and then they'll have a section on how something is made how a pair of shoes are made and they show like the factory processes uh, it's got something for the whole family so yes yeah, it's, it's really 
all-encompassing. Well, it is an educational show. That's the idea with with uh, the cartoon segments and then educational segments. And we, we asked Twitter uh, what their favourite cartoons were, and, and, and Descending with the Mouse was definitely one of the favourites. What I didn't realise was, well, first and foremost, it was quite a controversial TV show originally because there's a law that, well, there was a law that prohibited television for children under six years of age in Germany, or at least in, in West Germany. Uh, so it was quite controversial, and it was condemned by teachers and, and childcare professionals is bad for children's development it doesn't really? surprise you in germany that the that some professional might come out and have a very strong opinion about something they probably don't watch or understand despite it being condemned by by teachers it has become massive and it's generational like parents are watching it with their kids because they watched it when they were children which is quite a lot to do with why it's still popular the format's really interesting because it's like i said segments of cartoons and then segments of document little documentaries teaching kids about some pretty like extreme topics it's interesting that like there's there's a there's a list i found of of the kinds of things they've talked about yeah they talked about how hand warmers work how the internet works, how hot air balloons fly, how cell phones work. But they've also talked about outer space. But not just that, they've talked about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, World War Two, Battle of Teutoburg Forest, a Playmobil, like loads of topics. And the, 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 the reason it's so popular is that it has, it's, it manages to talk about these really complex topics in a way that kids understand. And it, it's super educational. And I was thinking the equivalent that we had in Britain was Blue Peter. And Blue Peter was a similar show. It didn't have cartoon segments, but you had a group of presenters, young people talking about similar kinds of topics. They would talk about poverty. They'd always do charity work. And there was always a, a Christmas mm-hmm. charity that people yeah. could donate, like various things they would donate, like bottle tops. And the amount of bottle tops would be the equivalent of, of, of it would be converted into money. And there was just loads of different things. So I, I thought it was quite interesting. But it led me to the question you asked on Twitter, which was, what are the favourite German cartoons? And we got so many responses, so many different recommendations. I'm going to ask you in a moment about your favourite cartoons as a kid, but I'm going to run through quickly some of these cartoons. So we have Debina Meyer. And when I said this to my wife, she started singing the theme tune. So Debina Meyer was originally... Uh, a series of novels by Valdemar Bonsells. Apologies if I've mispronounced that. And they were made into cartoon in the seventies, similar similar <laughs> uh, time to uh, Descending with the Mouse. Uh, and it centres on a on a precocious little bee called Maya who uh, goes on adventures. She meets lots of other animals in the forest and quite a lot about nature. And there's, there's a, a narrative that runs through it about warring factions with it, within the forest. This one you might know. Uh, Vicky und die starken Männer. Have you heard this? Vicky Vickinger? I've, I've heard of it, yeah, but I, I don't think I've ever watched any of it. Again, another 70s cartoon about Vicky the Viking, who's the son of Halvar, the chief of the Viking village of Flake. And they, uh, Vicky the Vickinger, uh, or Vicky in this case, is not a strong Viking, but really smart. And mm-hmm. solves the problems in each episode with an intelligent solution or outwits their enemies with, with clever solutions. What I found interesting about all of this is a lot of these were actually anime. So, uh, Vicky and Die Starken Männer, Debina Meyer, there's a lot of other ones. Someone had mentioned a cartoon called Captain Future. There's, there's loads of these examples that are actually anime and they were made in collaboration with, I think it's Zuyo Enterprises, which, which they produced these, these anime cartoons, which is why they have a very particular style. And 
and then it led me down to, to uh, well it's always been a question to me why anime is so popular in, in germany you see a lot more anime i know anime is popular globally it's massively popular but it was always curious to me why so many people my age were into anime in a way that like our generation i don't think really is in anime certainly none of my friends talked about it in the way that my german friends do and it's partly to do with the sort of 80s japan trying to promote itself in a positive light which is really nice i've got a question for you have you ever come across the cartoonist or the cartoon series lorio um i mean lorio i've, I've watched the documentary about lorio so i'm, mm-hmm. I'm aware of his, his significance in german culture uh, and german comedy especially but i've not watched any of his films or any of any of the projects he's been involved in uh, so tell me about lorio the reason i know about lorio or at least the reason i i know about the artist bernard victor christoph karl von bulo was often i'll get retweets or I'll, someone will tweet a particular skit that was made for i believe for mm-hmm. a quiz show uh, it's called ich will hier nur sitzen and it's like a, a a guy and he's his wife's sort of complaining at him because he's he's sitting down and he's just trying to get him to do stuff and when he, when he says he does he, he he just wants to sit where he is uh, she'll complain because the things that she suggested she complains that we wanted her to bring a, a, his jacket or you said you wanted to go for a walk and he's like no all i said was i wanted to sit here and, it, and it's really really common and i've seen it a few times and it's a, that's another big cultural mark and i thought it was interesting that you had like a little cartoon mm-hmm. segments and quiz shows and talk shows and things that were so popular that they had to start moving them to the start of the show so kids could watch them okay. before they go to bed a lot of kids who were born in this in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s have grown up with this but you'll also maybe know another really popular like interstitial cartoon that's used in, in on the public broadcaster zdf you you might have come across the mindsel mention okay yeah yeah so that they're these little uh six cartoon characters that are mascots for zdf and they appear during ad breaks and and they're used actually in uh in, in hoiter show a satirical mm-hmm. comedy show so again this there's, there's lots of these sorts of cartoons but i basically spent for the first time in about yeah probably about 30 25 maybe 30 years i spent saturday morning watching cartoons <laughs> and, it, and it was it was amazing one of the things i thought about was how many of the cartoons we watched as kids that weren't very educational. There seemed to be a lot of educational elements within these TV shows, especially within Descending to Mouse. But mm. I was thinking about my favourite cartoon show as a kid, which was Thundercats. Thundercats awesome. A L- lot of moral education, but I wasn't really paying attention to that. I was watching Lion-O kick ass with his sword that gave him sight beyond sight. And the moral delivery in Thundercats was often at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it was completely unrelated. <laughs> Lion-O would walk in and be like, hey, Wily Kid, Wily Cat, do you not know you should be recycling these bottles separately? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a public service announcement at the end. So, exactly. So what were some of your favourite cartoons as a kid? I mean, I, I kind of blank when someone asked me a question mm. about things like this maybe my memory is just shot some of the answers we got really took me back the gummy bears all right yeah, I'd yeah totally forgotten about the gummy bears and immediately uh, that answer gave the theme tune uh, life in my head again captain planet mm-hmm. was one that I, I remember really really enjoying but i think if i had to pick one cartoon uh, from my childhood that probably sticks with me it's actually yogi bear because mm. i had a vhs uh, of hanna barbera cartoons and it was primarily yogi bear that Hanna-Barbera style uh, of animation that gave us things like Yogi Bear, um, Quick Draw McGraw, the Flintstones, Mm -hmm. um, the Jetsons. I think that was just really, really common on British TV when we were young. So if I had to pick one, 
uh, to sort of represent my childhood, it'd probably be Yogi Bear. And again, he was a bear that didn't, he fixed his own messes. Uh, I think that's a lesson the elephant could learn from. Yeah, teach that elephant a lesson. <laughs> and he also liked to steal a picnic basket, so Well, I think that's, that's, pretty good that's another thing they did. They they introduced a sort of, sort of anti-hero. I mean, that sounds kind of crazy saying that out loud now, but Top Cat, for example, yeah. is just unbelievably anti-hero cartoon where he's not a good role model whatsoever for kids. He's teaching people how to be criminal, how to like skirt the line, and he treats the police with absolute disdain. So maybe that's why we see ACAB graffitied everywhere here in Germany. It's probably Top Cat. Yeah, damn Top Cat and his, <laughs> and his bin living ways. Yeah, I think, I think it was funny thinking about it because a lot of those Hanna-Barbera cartoons were based on, on iconic American comedians in the, or actors mm. in the era. And then we lived through the 80s where basically a lot of the cartoons were just toy adverts. There were vehicles to sell toys to kids on the back yeah. of the success of, of like Star Wars, which is the first mass merchandised uh, film targeted at kids. So Thundercats obviously had it, Transformers, He-Man, Brave Star. You mm. could go through all of these different ones. But the thing that, that stuck with me and I first realized that, oh, right, that this isn't just a cartoon. This is like a whole industry was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because I remember trying to get Teenage Mutant Ninja mm. Turtles figures the year the cartoon first came out was impossible. I remember my mum on the phone with a department store and she, she got off the phone and was like, oh, they've only got like the bad guys. And, I, and me and my brother were like, no, we don't want those. <laughs> we want the turtles. Want yeah, nah, I don't want Bebop. I want Michelangelo. <laughs> Come on. And like in, in, in the 80s, you couldn't get, you just couldn't get stuff in Britain that like from America, really, you can get it much easier now. It's like m- properly mass produced. You go into a shop and they would have a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles action figure that was like, he spins on the back of his shell and it had like a me- mechanical mechanism that allowed him to spin. You're like, what is this? It was only one. It was Donatello. And you're like, why? What? It, eh? And you could never get the whole collection. So it's like massive. But there was also a crossover between this anime culture because we had we had shows like uh, the Mysterious Cities of Gold, which I asked about before and you hadn't heard about. It was one series about a little kid looking for the Mysterious Cities of Gold, and I remember that like vividly as a kid watching that and just being sort of awestruck by it. But there were so many others. Ulysses Thirty One, which if you don't know Ulysses Thirty One, I watched it uh, as a repeat. Uh, my brother showed it to us and Ulysses 31 has possibly the best intro to any maybe only second to Thundercats it was it's fantastic beautiful 80s anime animation it's fantastic I just thought it's really interesting that a lot of the shows that resonated with me were basically toy adverts whereas when all these all the people gave in their replies were like shows that had maybe an educational aspect Mm. that certainly didn't have like mass produced marketing machines behind it Whereas now, I think yesterday I walked into the supermarket and I was looking at the bread section and there was a descending mid the mouse bread. Like, so I think we're, that Germany's catching up. Well, he's going to be retiring in a couple of decades, I guess, if he's following German law. So he needs to start putting away for his, for his rent to <laughs> sell out now. <laughs> Okay, we're moving on to our first story this week. We've got a theme this week, which is transport, in particular cars. I'm not a big car guy. I'm going to hopefully get some support from our in-house car expert, Simon. The first article is Trabi's more popular than Tesla's. And this is from berlinerzeitung.de. The Trabi is a, a really is an East German icon. In the last 10 years, this iconic East German car has been registered 
more than the Tesla on German roads. There are a, a total of 38,173 Trabants are registered in Germany, which contrasts with 34,000 Teslas. So for the first question I guess I'm going to ask our car expert, Simon, is would you like a Trabi? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think <laughs> when I see a Trabi, I'm overcome by this wave of nostalgia of something that I have zero nostalgic connection to. Um, Trabbies were not part of the English car scene whatsoever. There is something really charming about the design of the Trabant. It's a cute looking car compared to a lot of the Eastern Bloc stuff. For me, it represents a sense of fun that I mean, we hear all the time the stereotype that Germans aren't fun or don't have much of a sense of humour. And the fact that Trabant are so popular shows there is a real sort of lust for life, a real sense of humour uh, about this. So, yeah, I think it's a fantastic representation of Germany today. Trabant means companion uh, or fellow traveller and was actually inspired by Sputnik, the, the, the Russian satellite, the first satellite. Uh, so with the Trabant, obviously in eastern Germany, things were pretty different in the old DDR. And so it wasn't a case of just going to a shop and buying a car. You had to put your name onto a waiting list. And I mean, this is something that still happens. Tesla have a waiting list. A lot of other car companies, especially for their new uh, E uh, electric cars, have waiting lists. But the average time, I guess, for a waiting list for a Tesla is one year, maybe less. Uh, a Trabant, you could have waited 18 years to finally get your car. But what this meant was that a used Trabi was actually more expensive than a new Trabi because there was no waiting list. Uh, so you'd pay 30 to 50% as a premium to get your Trabi now. Um, so this idea of the waiting list for the Trabant to take away this idea of exclusivity or being able to buy your way to the front of the queue actually created a really sort of booming black market. People buy Teslas because they're meant to be good for the environment. Is that the case with the Trabi? Uh, not really. I mean, the Trabi was quite innovative in its own way. I mean, it had a steel chassis which is, is pretty old school. And this, of course, was sourced from Russia. So they had Russian steel chassis. Uh, and the body was actually plastic. What? It was made of what they... Yeah, it was called a duroplast, which is a mixture of formica, which we normally think for, like, countertops yeah. in our kitchens is formica, and bakelite, uh, which was used to make old-fashioned telephones. So they put formica and bakelite together and created duroplast. Uh, and they added uh, cotton fibres left over from the textile industry. So this was a, a hodgepodge. What materials do we have a lot of? It's like, okay, we got the formica, we got Bakelite, and we got leftover cotton. Okay, let's make basically a cheap fiberglass. Uh, so this was the body was quite light in comparison. Yeah, you wouldn't want to get into a car accident in one of those because it would just shatter, right? Well, I mean, the good news about this, they had safety in mind, and what they did was they made the car very slow, so you couldn't have <laughs> an accident really. Genius. Uh, so, so the naught to sixty miles an hour, the naught to one hundred kilometers an hour is about twenty seconds. I, my first car was a 1984 Polo Mark I, mm -hmm. and that's at 14 seconds. So that's decidedly pacey in comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, and the maximum speed uh, of a Trabi is 70 miles an hour, which is 114 kilometers an hour, if I've got my calculations right. So, I mean, obviously, uh, an accident head-on at 70 uh, or 114 kilometers an hour would be disastrous mm -hmm. uh, for everyone involved. The other benefit, of course, because the body is made of a, a plastic co uh, composite, 
it's actually really easy to repair and something you could make your own sort right. of patch kit uh, compared to others. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we use we use carbon fiber now in modern cars and it's basically carbon fiber is just sort of the top level of what Duraplast was. Yeah, using fibers with plastics to make a really strong compound. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was quite innovative in a sort of we don't have many raw materials. Uh, so, yeah, pretty cool. The structure gave it an interesting nickname. So people called it the plastic bomber uh, <laughs> or the Saxon Porsche, uh, which I think is really charming. That was my favorite part of your notes. As soon as I read that, I was like, I, I felt like Saxon Porsche was a kind of like, was that something that the West Germans would say? I felt like it was a bit of a bit of a tease or a bit of an insult. But it does feel very tongue in cheek. Uh, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that have taken ownership of this and now proudly have Saxon Porsche written on the side of their trabbies. The other thing that was quite unusual about the trabby, because it's a two stroke engine, which when I think two stroke, I think of lawn mowers and scooters. Uh, so this <laughs> yeah. isn't really the kind of engine that you normally deal with. But it also required a sort of understanding of chemistry to a certain degree because there was no fuel hatch on a Trabi. And so you had to like lift the hood and pump gas directly into the tank. Uh, and then you had to add a special oil in the right blend. This then had to be shaken uh, so that then you had the right fuel mixture inside your Trabi. So it is like an old lawnmower that my granddad had so yeah. this isn't something that was That's easy wild. or accessible in any way shape or form so yeah the trappy was a, a wonderful creation out of this era and yeah people love it well i mean okay so you could get spare parts and it sounds like it's fairly easy to maintain but not exactly user friendly as a vehicle the question i sort of come to is why do you think it's so popular is it is it people just reliving the good old days or the simpler life of the DDR? Or is it is it just the fact that it's really easy to maintain? I think the, the mechanical simplicity of it is, is definitely a huge benefit. If you are interested in maintaining a car and, and having a classic car, to, the Germans call them old timers, something with basically zero electrics and simple mechanics is really easy to learn in comparison to... If you try and maintain, let's say, a Mark IV Golf, you suddenly have a lot more to learn about. So I think that simplicity makes them really easy to manage in comparison to other ones. I'd, I'd like to tell myself, at least, it's just this idea of fun. It's, it's a fun car to have. It's a, it's a head-turner. There are lots of companies, especially in Berlin, yeah. where they do Trabi tours. So you can get a tour of the city inside of Trabant. This charm, this nostalgia is a big, a big selling point. So I th I'm sure if we lived in Berlin... Uh, instead of Bavaria, I would have had more connection to this car over the last 10 years. I, you don't see them here, really. You see one every now and again. I de have developed yeah. more of an affection with like Mantas because you see more of those around. But yeah, I think anyone who lives in Berlin for a long time, they will develop an affection for this really cute, charming sort of relic that is super East German. This is, there's an element of like hipster cool about it, though. Like, mm -hmm. uh, And the, the, the picture in the article, I don't want to to sort of stereotype anyone but the a gentleman taking a, a photo of his friend sitting in a trabant and and they do have the the whiff of a hipster about them i'm sure there's acid wash jeans <laughs> nice old school leather jacket a bit of a fukuhila going on a bit of a mullet boom you're ready is is it the only is it the only Soviet car that's popular? There, I think, as far as I know, in Germany, it's the only Soviet car that is, that has this kind of niche appeal. I'm sure if we go 
further east in other countries there will be other cars i mean uh, you see a lot of you go four by fours here those are still going very reliable simple four by four that would be cheap to buy now uh, in fact one of my neighbors has one uh, that he's converted into a camper uh, it's really cool but i think especially coming from from the uk we had just a series of jokes about these kinds of cars it must have happened here as well that they were sort of something to make fun of because if you were from the west the Trabi was something that was kind of laughable in comparison to a Beetle, a Kiefer. So it's just a better car in many ways. The the charm of the Trabi, it's the yeah. way it's designed, the look, the round headlights. It's got a it's got a really distinctive face, and I think a lot of the other Soviet cars didn't focus on that at all in design. It was strong corners, built to last, as opposed to to bring a smile on your face. It's not something you think of when you think of the old Diesel, the DDR. But the Trabi had that in spades. It made you smile, and it still does. Uh, and I'm sure that's why loads of hipsters in Germany are spending a few thousand euros to get one uh, and and restore it. It's wonderful. I think I think again, if it's affordable, it's fairly easy to maintain. There is some complexity to it, as you mentioned about refilling it. But obviously, and this happened over time. Is you see cars like the the new versions of the Beetle. I mean, very sleek and very nice, but they've been super modernized and. Or you think about the Mini, you know. I mean, there's not much Mini about the Mini now. And like when I th- when I saw the the design of that car, I just thought, oh, it's quite like the Mini. Like the mm-hmm. Mini felt like a DIY. My, I remember my dad telling me about his Mini when he was when he was uh, in his twenties, and it was like held together with bits of uh, sticking tape, and you had a string that you had to pull in order to open the door, and it just kept going, it kept going, it kept going, and it's similarly apparently for these Trabants. There's that like not just the nostalgia, it, it just it, it does feel like it's a it's a nicer vehicle to to motor around in than jumping in sort of a flashy new top of the range Mercedes or something like that. I, I don't know how much respect you'd get on the road. But. First of all, if you enjoy engine fumes and getting a little bit high, then I think the Trabi is the car for you, for sure. But if you do have to commute from one town to another, I would not want to take it on the autobahn. Uh, I would not feel safe uh, trying to get to maximum speed just to be slow on the autobahn. Being raced past by the new BMW M5 would feel terrifying, I think, in a Trabi. I have a feeling if you got overtaken by a Mercedes that it would just disintegrate. <laughs> car would just disintegrate <laughs> as it went past. It's like someone doing a 200 kilometres an hour in a Porsche and your Trabi just, the, the door just pulls off. <laughs> Disappears. <laughs> Uh, so moving on from Trabis, uh, we figured we'd have a look at what are the most popular cars in Germany. Obviously, a lot of these brands are really, really world famous and dominant around the world. And so it transpires that Volkswagen is still the most popular car in Germany, even though they have gone through their emissions scandal. This has cost the company billions, but apparently it hasn't dented consumer trust very much, which speaks to the experience that people have of owning these cars. I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of VWs. My first cars, the first four I had were all VWs and I loved all of them. And the car I loved the most was my Mark III Golf GTI. It was my dream car. Even though VW have their emission scandals, I would certainly buy another one. I've always said that, that actually the emission scandal that VW went through a couple of years ago actually enhanced their reputation for engineering because they managed to engineer a vehicle and come up with ways <laughs> to to trick a test and 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 to and even if as simple as just turning the engine off as they drove past the people who were who were checking the noise of the engine it felt, it felt like that was like oh well you managed to trick the emission 
license test. You guys must know what you're doing when it comes to engineering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the sunny way of looking at this. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a smart fix. But as I say, like for me, VW is a brand that I'm always going to love and I've got a real soft spot for. And if, if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first three cars I would buy would all be old VWs. Top of the list, the Mark 1 Golf GTI. Love that car. If anyone has one in their garage and they want to sell it, reach out. I, I would be interested in buying one. Are you using this 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 podcast as a as your own personal auto trader? If it, if it works, then it's all worthwhile. Fair enough. Uh, then I'd take the, the the Golf Two GTI. I, I love its squareness. I love its just iconic look. Uh, and then the Corrado VR6. Uh, has to be the VR6, I think. It's just, oh, gorgeous looking thing. Where do you say these things? Like, I have no image in my head. Like, I know so little about cars. Like, I, I don't know anything about my, my own car. I know nothing. Like, you just say, like, Golf Mark 1, and I'm like, that, that's some letters, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, there's a number, there's a letter. Don't have an image in my head. Like, I just, yeah, I just I've, have no, I have no sense for vehicles at all. And- Especially the, the one, the Golf one. It, it changed the way that people thought about cars in many ways it was the first hatchback and especially the gti it was basically the first time that a consumer could go and buy something that was close to a racing experience that Mm -hmm. car was designed to be driven not aggressive necessarily but a little bit risky it wasn't designed to be driven safely to the shops Uh, it was something for the racetrack as well as the weekend and for me it's just it's the height of german design when it comes to cars Mm. yeah it really is a few years ago i I had the opportunity to buy one i didn't take it uh, and i can still i can see it Uh, it was beautiful one owner (sighs) yeah definitely an opportunity missed so yeah reach out anyone as much as i love vw's there is one car that i wouldn't be seen dead in and as 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 a wonderful case of coincidence it is the car that nick drives (laughs) because <laughs> nick drives uh, a vw up hang on hang on hang on it's got an exclamation so it's the vw up i was literally going to come to that i was gonna, I, I refer to it as the up exclamation mark uh I, i'm not gonna focus the up with that positivity I, I i don't i don't like being critical of nick i i respect his choices and i respect that he's not a car guy that's totally fine but i am like filled with questions about what it's like to live with this car uh, and what it's like to to drive on the autobahn and and be out there against really big fast cars in comparison. So Nick learned to drive here as well. So I think that's that's an interesting thing we're going to come back to in a minute. But I need to know a few things. So I have a few questions for you, Nick. So question one is: Does the exclamation mark help with power? If it does, I've not noticed it. I think of anything, it just enrages other motorists. Like the you mentioned, you mentioned you don't like to be critical. Like the amount of opprobrium that came with me telling our group of friends that i'd that i'd had an up (laughs) yeah i still haven't quite lived down it's the people were actively angry that i had this car and i was like but it's just the same as a mini and people just went nuts (laughs) no it's not i say it's just the same in it because i don't care i have no like it's just a car it's like whatever but it a lot of people see like your car reflects your personality somehow and i'm like does it well cool i guess but so no like the exclamation mark isn't really giving me any more power as a as a stamp on the accelerator hoping that i'll hit 120 at some point okay so i mean i say like it it can represent personality and there are certain types of people that buy an up 
What type of what, what types of people are those? Uh, they're people that are price conscious, <laughs> definitely, because it's an affordable car. There are people that maybe uh-huh. have a good tax advisor because it's good for tax, and there are people that want to just like drive to their local shop that four hundred meter journey. And I mean, it's people that don't care about cars essentially. <laughs> so, so basically, what I'm hearing here is that I'm tight with my money. Uh, uh-huh. I've got I've got a tax advisor. I wish I, I wish I had a tax advisor. I'd probably get more tax back. What was the third one? Driving the 100 metres to the shop or the 400 metres to the shop. So I'm just some filthy casual then. (laughs) (laughs) So number three, I just drive to the shops because I'm a filthy casual. And most of that's actually true. (laughs) So I mean, the question I had really is when you see other up drivers, sorry, when you see other up exclamation mark drivers, do you like wave at each other? Like, is there a, like a kinsmanship between this group of people? Because this exists in other cars for sure. I'm more generous to an up driver on the roads than I Are am you really? to any other drivers. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You sympathise with their plight. <laughs> if I'm going to overtake a truck and behind the truck is an up, I'll moderate my speed and flash and let people let that up go in front so they can overtake too. Because I know, like most drivers, just don't do that. There's not a lot of friendliness on the roads for for up drivers. I wouldn't say there's like a a club I'm joining. I'm not wearing any any sort of leather jacket with with an up exclamation mark on the back. Not yet. But not anyway. yet. Yeah. Ooh. Hopefully in the future. Well, I'm driving gloves or any of that jazz. But I do feel like there's an affinity. There's an understanding that we're driving a car that isn't exactly the most powerful, and we need all the help we can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I I think that's exactly it. Okay. Question three. Would you be sad to know that the up exclamation mark is also rebadged and sold elsewhere as other brands so it's not a vw up in other countries we i went to pick up the up from from the factory in wolfsburg which was an experience mm-hmm. is it the vw Werkstatt? and it's like got a museum that was a really good experience got because obviously they've got audi and they've got got lamborghini and they've got so, porsche and things like that so so you could see you got to see like there in the museum and that was lovely but i remember I remember the guy selling the car to us and I was like asking some questions and he's like, well, and I was like, oh, so where, was it made here? And he's like, it was assembled here. And he started a continuous <laughs> conversation. I was like, wait, wait, wait. I was like, what do you mean it was assembled here? And he's like, oh, well, all the parts were made in, in Eastern Europe, but 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 it was uh, assembled here. And then he continued and I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that seems suspicious. <laughs> like I noticed there isn't a lot of made in Germany stamps in the car itself, but I'm not surprised. In other countries, it is the Skoda Citygo. Uh, and it's also the Seat Me M double I. Oh, that's terrible! Actually, I'm happy with up exclamation mark now because the Seat Me would make me feel even worse. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It's pretty bad there. Okay, the next question. Then. Question four: Would you like three inches more length? Ooh, uh. that that feel that feels like a very loaded question. Well, if you are after those extra three inches, then the South American up is the car for you. It is three inches longer. Yeah. I feel like this. This it's a bit like a TARDIS in the sense mm-hmm. that TARDIS from Doctor Who is is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It does feel more spacious inside. What what I do like about the up and and I do like about small cars in general is it's really easy mm-hmm. to see everything that's happening. You, you've got like a hundred percent visibility everywhere. Whereas when I'm driving, I've driven Audis and I've driven Mercedes and I've driven BMWs. Like I don't know where I'm looking. There's this. There's lots of gadgets. There's lots of flashy stuff going on. And there's this. I feel like I turn around to look to to do my uh, Schulterblick when I'm when I'm uh, overtaken, and I feel or like I'm I'm checking to go into uh, into the lane, and, and it feels like. I'm a thousand <laughs> kilometers away from the back of the car, and it's like, oh my god, like there's a sofa in there. Yeah, I do like the fact that it's it's smaller. 
I said, I'm not really bothered about the extra extra three inches that the the lucky South Americans are getting. Well, I mean, I, w- I will admit that the first time I got in your car, and we were, I mean, we're both over six foot. We're not small guys, and we both when we both got in there, it didn't feel small at all. Uh, I was pretty impressed by that. I'm not going to say blown away, but my- mildly impressed. <laughs> That's the best we can hope for. <laughs> okay, question five. Do you think it's safe? Do you feel safe in it, especially at speed? If is it safe if if all the other cars on the road were an up, then yeah, it would be really really safe. <laughs> I never feel safe on the autobahn. I feel a constant sense of dread whenever I'm driving on the autobahn. That's never really gone away. You just have to be super aware all the time, and and you're always watching for for idiots driving at high speeds. I I remember listening to a podcast. I think it was the Freakonomics podcast, and they were talking about what happens when you market your car as like a really safe vehicle. And they were talking about I think there was a, a Mercedes that they marketed in America is death proof. Okay. And it actually makes people more dangerous because they're like, I'm safe, mm-hmm. but they're not thinking about who they're crashing into. You're safe in your massive tank, but me and my prefab plastic tacky up is is basically going to get uh, eviscerated if he crash into me at 200... Well, I mean, most cars would be eviscerated at 200 kilometers an hour, but like if you hit me at 100, 100 kilometers an hour, I think I might get eviscerated too. I think the the, tra- the trabby from the last the last section would probably have a better time than the <laughs> up. But don't feel I don't feel safe because of other drivers i'm i'm pretty careful when i drive so i I feel like because i'm aware i have to be maybe hyper aware because yeah. i just don't know what's going to happen around us i'm not a big fan of him as a person but as a car journalist he does know his stuff and jeremy clarkson argued that the the, the safest we could make a car is if in the middle of every steering wheel there was a blade pointing in the direction of the driver because then we would all be very very cautious i think i could agree with that yeah so, I mean, your, your safety ratings are very, very good for the up. Not very good on pedestrian safety. Uh, so if you're going to hit anything, let it be another car instead of a pedestrian. That's always my plan. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. Uh, so how fast does the up go? I think it does go It does go over 200 kilometers an hour. Does but it? I would... I think oh so. God. I mean, it says 200 on the speedometer, so I mean, like, come on. Uh, that's maybe that that's just optimism. Just, yeah, I think that's the optimistic speedometer there. But accelerating, I, I drove to Frankfurt a few years ago, and we hit a stretch of autobahn. There's four lanes, and you need to be able to, uh, if you're going to overtake like loads of trucks or this this slow drivers, then sometimes you do need to hit like 160. But the the beauty of the the up is if you drive it sensibly at around about 140 130 you you get a lot for your money you know so mm-hmm. it is more about that and once it goes over 120 the acceleration is pretty good it's noticeable that when i've had my winter tires changed the the mechanical stick a little sticker on the dashboard that says don't go over 190 and i'm like that's up that really is optimistic <laughs> i'm gonna get to 190 <laughs> but thank you for saying it anyway uh you've really felt you've really made my day mr garage man but yeah so i think it, i think really you're driving it probably max is 160 you're gonna be driving it for any any length of time i imagine that that must feel pretty fast car that is small with it feels like quite a a small shell around you. it's not like some huge limousine style eight series or something well you don't have soundproofing so you're very aware that that you're in a car (laughs) you know it doesn't feel like you've you've suddenly got into a soundproof booth a few years ago i had to get a replacement car and it was an audi and i got in and i just couldn't hear anything i couldn't hear the engine i couldn't hear anything it was just almost silent which was nice but then i was like that experience didn't make me feel like very safe when I saw the Audi drivers because I was like, you lose a level of awareness when you don't have a little bit of noise going on. It's not deafening or anything, but I think it's it's the case that 
sometimes you'll hit a hill and uh, you're going down a hill and you didn't realize you were going down a hill and i think I, I think i sort of went over 160 and i really began to feel it i was like oh right i'm going real fast but mm-hmm. because because everyone else is going at speed you don't it's all relative isn't it yeah no that's true okay one final question for you then uh, given the chance would you go for an e up exclamation mark an e, an e up an e up <laughs> So for, for for any uh any English listeners like you're welcome uh, for that Yorkshire reference right there. Um and for the Germans Eup is a phrase used in Yorkshire and parts of the northeast uh to say like how's it going? So Eup uh, instead of Navi Geets. So yeah, Eup is a really hilarious name for me. I I think it's <laughs> it's the best reason to have that car is that you can get to go around bit all day going like Eup Where's my e up? <laughs> Listener, you should have seen the pleasure in Simon's face when he said e up. I would like an electric car. Yeah, I would like an electric car. I think I think I would feel I, I feel like it's it's the the way forward. And I think if there was an option to, to change it to electric, I'd take it. I'm not worried about long distances. I know there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't want to get an electric car because I can't dr- I can't on a whim drive a thousand kilometers. Are you driving a thousand kilometers regularly? Oh, no, I usually just drive to work. And and now that mm. there's slowly seeing more infrastructure for electric cars i feel like yeah it's it's an option so i would i would happily change just for the sake like environmental factors obviously well, i mean we are seeing some pretty good pledges from governments around the world saying that all cars will have to be electric and i think ford was the first company that said outside of north america all their cars would be electric at a certain point i mean this the crux of the problem is that the consumer isn't quite ready yet for electric cars i mean there is the there are the issues with range the longevity of the batteries is a problem a lot of these cars have seven years is the estimate before the battery has to be completely changed and that's like a ten thousand euro change but i mean there are people and i'm one of them unfortunately for now like i'm a petrol head and i love the sound of a petrol engine and I think there's there's reticence for a lot of people. But when you see what is possible with electric cars, I mean, Porsche, I think it was the 959 they did there that was all electric. Uh, Mercedes did an absolutely incredible G55 GT, all electric. And they are more powerful. They're faster accelerating. And they offer more of everything mm. to the driver apart from sound and smell. Uh, and I think if you can say this electric car is going to be faster, it's going to be more economical, it's going to be this, this, and this, and all you're losing is the sound and the smell, then I think everyone mm-hmm. will be happy to move. But there's just there's progress yeah. to be made, uh, and we're seeing huge developments. The design and engineering will get to a point where mm-hmm. it makes sense to go electric, and yeah, the E-Up hopefully will still be going in one form or another, and uh, then you can like do like a Yorkshire salute uh, to other EOP drivers. I don't know what a Yorkshire salute looks like. You take off your flat cap and put it out of the window. <laughs> I have to buy a flat cap. Have a whip it running next to the car. <laughs> I mean, what the one the one last thing I would say is that that as much as it's on the government to push it, it's on the consumer too. And I think I think there's a lot of people who like to buy bamboo toothbrushes and do a bit of recycling and buy some hemp shoes or something, but they don't actually want to change that much. It's a combination of the consumer being willing to give something up, which isn't always the case, and and the government actually taking action on it. But yeah, I mean, as long as it's not made out of bakelite, <laughs> I think we'll be okay. <laughs> It'll be called something more interesting then. You, uh, sh- let's just call it bacon, and then more people will want to buy it. it would just the, the 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 Volkswagen um, shatter, <laughs> a shatter on impact. <laughs> 
Uh, so I mentioned earlier that Nick learned to drive here in Germany. So I've got a few questions about this because obviously I, I learned in the UK and so didn't have to do any testing here. And when I moved to America, I had to do a test there to transfer my license. So first question is, how was it learning to drive in a second language, doing it in German, did that make it harder, do you think? It wasn't essentially my choice. It was really, and actually it, it was it was the only way I would have learned to drive because I had no intention of learning to drive. I had no interest in it. Why is that? Just the idea of it scared us. I didn't feel like I was mm -hmm. responsible enough. I was used to public transport and I was willing to accept the trials and tribulations of taking trains and, and buses everywhere mm -hmm. rather than have the responsibility of driving. I just felt like it wasn't for me. But my boss was quite canny about it. He invited us to a meeting and said, hey, what are you doing at six o'clock? And I was like, oh, nothing. He said, all right, good. You're coming with me to do your first theory lesson. And... <laughs> six o'clock he went with us and we went and sat in a room with a load of teenagers and i had my first theory lesson and i didn't understand any of it i had to speedily learn a lot of vocabulary and learn mm. a lot of a lot of stuff because i think i've said this before but you've got to do i think it's 13 hours of theory before you're even allowed to get in a car to the to the smallest detail i remember sitting through an hour of how to use a, an anhanger, how to use a trailer. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there going, I don't have no intention of ever using a trailer <laughs> like ever again, but it went about like the the angles that you need to think about and how to reverse and how to maneuver it and the things you need to be aware of, connecting up the lights and all of this stuff. So it was very, very detailed theory lessons. But it was, yeah, it was it was like 13 weeks before I even got on a car. I mean, this is the polar opposite of learning in the UK. I never set foot in a classroom and every single driving school here is effectively a classroom so there is a, a real focus on learning the theory <laughs> i think in the uk most people we buy the theory test book you learn how to beat the quiz basically and you do the quiz it's, it's much much easier and far more cost effective as well it's a very german process i mean it's the german mm -hmm sort of way of thinking about things like driving or explaining problems is you go through the theory and then you get to the problem so that's like it seemed quite logical to me that that was what was happening but what i found interesting was like so i think the rule is in britain you can go out with another driver if they're over 21 and have driven for a certain amount of years yes yeah, three years with a license i think yeah you're not allowed to do that in, in Germany or um, at least as it was explained to me that my wife couldn't take me out in her car and drive around a car park mm. i had to uh, go to the classes then i had to go with with a fully qualified driving instructor you'll, you'll walk past uh, Farschule, you'll mm. see large groups waiting to go in and they'll sit and watch a, a video and a powerpoint presentation about the things they need to know and that's part of it and obviously it's all in german so it's quite intimidating if your german's not great but just it was terrifying because they'd just ask questions and each week it felt like there was a different different guy doing it and each week someone would ask me a question and i'm just like no idea what you've said like I don't have no idea what you've said, and and then oh. there was like a room of seventeen year olds going because they all knew, and they were waiting, and I was just like, oh, I felt like really cringy, and I felt really embarrassed, and as I should do really, because because it's you've got to learn the language, but it all changed when I got my driving instructor assigned to me, who was ah oh, like. I wouldn't have passed without him. I know there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of horror stories mm. about really horrible driving instructors, but the guy who, who tr trained me was lovely. He had real, he really loved uh, speaking English. He also acknowledged the fact that I had to know some German, so he would be really careful about explaining mm. stuff. We'd, we'd do a bit of driving, and then he would say, do you know how a gearbox works? And I'm like, no, and then he would explain it in English, and then he'd go, now we're going to watch a video, and it's in German. He'd pull out like a phone or an iPad, and he'd watch a video, mm -hmm. and he'd be oh, like, cool. this is this, and he'd teach me all the words, because what I didn't know then, but it 
like I do know now is driving examiner might just ask you to name different parts of a vehicle which obviously in a second language is a bit of a problem but not just like the bits you see as you sit in the driver's seat he could take you out of the car and go like like point to the parts of the engine and just go what's that what's this and he would explain a lot mm. of that stuff and he was so helpful so supportive and I really enjoyed it I, I, I did like work, work my ticket as we'd say in Newcastle I did stress him out a lot because I was so nervous and he would just like go I'd be like, go left and I'd just go and he'd go no no not left here and like I'd just like turn and he'd go no not that's not now like next left and then like we'd sort of but he was really patient and really nice and and yeah I don't think I would have got through it without without his support one of the the things that I'm thankful for having done my test in the UK is cost because as you say it is possible in the UK for someone with a license to teach someone with a provisional license so my first I guess 50 hours of driving were with my mum. I did that for hours and hours before I'd even had a lesson. And I think I probably had maybe 10 lessons uh, with a, a qualified instructor, and that was it. But I think the whole process cost me, let's say, £600 to get my driving test. Very, very cheap comparisons doing it in Germany. So, so how much did it cost, uh, roughly? It was easily like two grand. And speaking to other people, that's their experience too, is that some people have... have paid over two grand some people just under that's uh, for the tests it's for the lessons it is really really expensive but going by the level of detail in the practice the amount of uh, information that's that you need to know mm -hmm. works out like the thing that i think mm -hmm. is really vital and it, it's what makes me worried when i see an austrian license plate or a swiss license plate or especially a british license plate is there's a lot of little tricks that you need to know about how to drive at speed on the autobahn things like where do you look and there's two most vital things that i remember every time i get in the car is i remember i was driving and he said where are you looking and i was like i'm looking at the car in front of me he's like you look at the car in front of you, you acknowledge that it's there you keep your distance and you look as far away as possible yeah. and, and observe what can be happening he always said to me like predict what's going to happen before it happens so if you're overtaking a car assume that at any point that car's just going to come out without indicating and that's i think why i've never i've never had a serious accident is i'm anticipating what an accident might be in any given situation if you get on the autobahn you have no idea about what it's like to drive at speed and you have no idea where you're looking like there's a much higher chance that you're going to end up killing someone which is why when i see people driving at 200 kilometers hour get really angry because mm. i'm like like there's no way you can anticipate what's going to happen if somebody makes a mistake it doesn't really matter if it's their fault if you you've put your face through through the asphalt you know it's because anything that hits anything at 200 kilometers hour there's going to be a real mess and plus you've got to think as well if you've got other cars doing those speeds driving as much as i do for work i'd say at least every day i'll see one low level mm. accident yeah. at least once a week i'll see one serious accident and that's just driving on landstrasse or on autobahns you see, the most times you'll see is it's someone who's driven at the back of someone else because they're not keeping distance nearly every time it's a car that's the front's totally mangled and there's a car in front of it the mm. back's totally mangled and it's because they're not keeping distance nearly every time and it infuriates me because that's the biggest danger is someone driving 200 kilometers an hour in the left lane they feel entitled especially especially mercedes drivers audi drivers bmw drivers you'll be looking you'll look in your rearview mirror and it's clear and you'll come out and you'll go to overtake a truck and then you look up and there's a mercedes right behind you <clears throat> flashing the lights and i hate that but there's nothing you can do about it like it fills me with like a i'm not an angry guy usually but that just boils my piss you're trying to kill us there's no need to do that i'm overtaking this truck that truck's not going to mm. move and i'm not going to go any faster you can see the car i'm driving 
you can see the car you're driving just have some patience but there's a lot of that this this entitlement i've got this size of car and it's my road and you're like and i think that's that's something that really really gets to us yeah i mean there is a small saving grace that that is something that is policed very strongly and you can lose your license just for driving too close to the car in front of you but i would say overall the experience of learning to drive in germany was really positive i felt well really 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 prepared and saying that when i took the test was hilarious like i passed first time because i had a really good trainer but a lot of luck as well i only passed my theory test by by one point and i came out and i gave them the sheet to my instructor and he just he curled up laughing he just thought it was the funniest thing it was just how i've never seen that in my life ever how the hell have you done that and it was because i changed one answer right at the end as the last person in the room you have these little mm-hmm. monitors and it's a touch screen and you do that and everyone all these kids are just gone and i was still sitting there going oh it would doing this situation i'd done so much training beforehand and then i just changed an answer and then the guy went <laughs> and I was like, "What?" <laughs> came into his, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And and so it was fine. And and then it came the day of the test. I remember this so distinctly. I was waiting around again. I'm just surrounded by kids because now there's like most adults have learned to drive by. But I was learning to drive when I was like just like 29, 28, mm. 29. So most people were, most adults had already passed. So I was like a curiosity to everyone. And I and and I was waiting with my instructor, and I was like stressing and stressing. The first person who took the test failed. Second person who took the test failed. And there was only three people. And I was like, oh. Well, either it's a law of averages or like this guy just hates, is really picky and he really hates everybody because they were totally gutted and they felt that it was unfair. And so I remember he's like, oh, you got 10 minutes. And I was like, what do I do with these 10 minutes? I was chain smoking. <laughs> and I was like, there's one thing that will help. And I listened to Al Pacino's speech from any any <laughs> given Sunday. I remember like distinctly, I put it on and it was just like, he's just like, it's a, it's a game of inches. He's <laughs> just, like he's got you got to fight for that inch and he's going like going at it going at it and i was just like right i'm ready i'm ready and i got in the car and i started the engine and we went and uh, i stalled once and i stalled driving into a car uh, parking space so i stalled the engine in full control and just rolled it to a stop <laughs> put the handbrake on and the the, the 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 examiner looked at us and smiled I th- he obviously knew i'd stalled he didn't make me do parallel parking he didn't make me reverse around a corner and then there was a one traffic light just before i got back to the testing area and i almost went through a red light did an emergency stop and he looked at me and went i guess we don't have to do an emergency <laughs> stop then. and then we got pulled up and i think i've told this story before but i'll say it again the driving instructor got in the front car and, and he was talking to us he goes well nick um you failed. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And he was just like, only joking. And he had my driving license in his hand. And I was like, you bastard. And they were like, they were peeling up with laughter. He thought it was really <laughs> funny. And then he just took us out for a beer. And I remember my leg didn't stop shaking. I couldn't. I could barely press my foot on the on the brake because my my leg was shaking, just involuntary shaking for the entire journey. Uh, it was nerve wracking, but definitely worthwhile. Yeah. It, it needs to be recognised that feeling you had. About not necessarily wanting to learn to drive because of the responsibility mm-hmm. of it is something that people really need to mm-hmm. think about uh, and be conscious of so yeah kudos on that and kudos for for breaking down the barriers and making it and now you are the proud king of the autobahn and you're up oh. i'm barely i'm barely even a princeling but um, <laughs> i don't break down barriers i drive sensibly and uh, <laughs> at the, the correct speed that's the lesson for today i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Moving on. This is an article from automotorunsport.de and the article title is Study Automarking Clichés. And it is a, a study that was, has been done about the, the various different clichés, the various different stereotypes uh, or, or German drivers have for various cars on the roads. Uh, things such as uh, the Mini is a female car. The Mini, the Smart, and the Fiat, noticeably not an up, by the way, is the most feminine brand. Which, like, I find I find that just obnoxious when people are like that's a woman's car, that's a man's car, and it's just I find that just a little bit draining, to be honest. And saying that, I'm going to be very hypocritical by saying the Jaguar, Mercedes, and and Volvo drivers are particularly old. I'd agree with that. <laughs> Ferrari owners, Porsche owners, and Jaguar drivers are considered to be extremely arrogant. So, Simon, do you have any stereotypes, cliches about the drivers on the autobahn or drivers in general? I mean, yeah, we, we pick up these stereotypes because they've been going for, for decades now. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned a few brands earlier for being like the fast, pushy cars on the autobahn. Yeah, they are Audi, they're Mercedes, they're BMW because these are, relatively speaking, high-performance cars that are also daily drivers. Yeah, I, I drive an Audi now, so I guess I'm part of the problem. Coming back to the, the Mini, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's, it's a gender it to say it's, it's a woman's car. doesn't feel very good, but there is a lot of evidence to show that the majority of people driving Minis are women. So I don't think it has to necessarily be unfair because the design of the Mini is cute. Uh, it's designed to be appealing, but they're also fantastic cars, uh, I think. BMW have done a really good job of making a, a cute car, very performance focused. It's a good car to drive. As a man with a big beard, I'd rather not be seen in one. Uh, driving it, I'd rather be driving uh, yeah, a Porsche. Sounds pretty good to me. I wouldn't want to drive a Porsche. Honestly, I'd just have no, no interest in driving. Like Every time I see a Porsche, it's usually a garish, bright colour and it's being driven by some like 50-year-old bloke who's trying to relive his youth. And that's not even like that's not even a joke. Literally every time I see one, maybe it's just Augsburg. Maybe it's just a population of like middle-aged Porsche owners. But it's, it's economics. Like who can afford a Porsche when they're thirty? Like you have to either be be from money, or have had one incredible idea. Uh, it is yeah. It's it's fifty-year-old guys, as you say, holding on and reaping the rewards. Um, yeah. nothing, nothing smells like desperation, like a, a bright yellow Porsche being driven by a fifty-year-old bloke. It just it just stinks of desperation. It just like oh, I'm a, I'm too close to death. <laughs> This is Future Nick. Since the conquest of Earth by the nanobots, we all own Porsches. Mine's neon pink. I regret nothing. Simon is more rebellious. He doesn't own a car. Since he got those bionic legs, he can run faster than a cheater on Nandrolone. He doesn't see the point in four wheels. Anyway, let's not spoil the future too much. Back to the show. When we look at these, these brands, these stereotypes have stayed quite true. So like Mercedes... Drivers are regarded as being very conservative. It is a brand that hasn't really done very well recently. Its design in the last 20 years hasn't been that dynamic when compared to Audi or BMW. And so you do have a lot of people that buy Mercedes because they've always bought Mercedes. And this is something that happens with a lot of German families. There is a brand that they're connected to. My wife's family were Opel for years. Uh, everyone drove Opels. 
Uh, and I think that's moved a little bit now because there's a lot of affordability of jumping around in between these brands. But, I mean, some of these stereotypes are just really unfair. Uh, so this article says that Ford and Opal drivers uh, are generally regarded as being unattractive. Uh, so apparently ugly people <laughs> buying Fords and Opals. Um, so, yeah. That's a really weird, like, how would you, would you even gauge that, you know? That's really odd. Well, this is just people being asked, what do you think about Ford and Opal drivers? And people fall back on these stereotypes that they've been taught and have had their entire lives. So, yeah, Toyota uh, drivers are regarded as being modest. And I think there is some truth in that. Uh, I think the Toyota Prius, which was the first really successful hybrid, if you drove one of those, it was because you cared about the environment and you cared about your wallet. These stereotypes, there is truth and there's falsehoods in all of them, I think. But yeah, as an Audi driver, I do feel more conscious about being a good uh, a courteous driver on the road i don't want to be a dick uh, because i don't want people to go oh bloody howdy driver so i'm trying my best to to negate the stereotype That's me. exactly you and your waving your fist out of your up exclamation mark window i think i think yeah i, I try to avoid that because there's nothing like a, a, a large angry man in a very small car so that's that's just yes, comedic gold yeah. if ever you that's, see that's it. the way to do it what what i do find is i think that people assume that i'm a woman mm-hmm. driver when they see the back of the the up and so they're actually way more aggressive uh with like the people are really really aggressive when i'm driving how intimidating yeah. is that like and it just it's unnecessary it's just like let be be a conscientious driver, be a like a, a like a, a nice person on the road. There's n- but I think a lot of people get in the car. They're somehow in like some capsule mm. where no one can see them, and the laws don't apply, and they can do what they want. This really is the, the negative of these stereotypes, and why it is a, a problem that they're perpetuated the way they are, because it does affect the way people react to other cars on the road. People are more likely to treat other members of their brand kindly they're more likely to be dismissive of other cars. They're more likely to be fearful of other brands, even paint colours, all this kind of stuff that has an effect on the, the mentality and the psychology of the driver. Um, so I think in many ways it would be really beneficial if we just like debadged everything. All these, ster- all these stereotypes and cliches are really like seem really negative. Like, is there any positive? Like, is there a car you see on the road and you're like, those guys are lovely. Those are the best guys on the road. I really like those guys. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's, a Mark, it's a Mark 1 Golf GTI. <laughs> so anyone driving that car is good people. Yeah. I, show me evidence to the contrary and I'll eat my hat. Can I honestly, I'd, I'd have to know what a Mark 1 was before I can even comment. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show this week. Thank you all for listening. We're steadily growing our audience, but if you'd like to help us spread the joy of Decades From Home, retweet us or share the link to the podcast using the hashtag Decades From Home, all lowercase, and we'll happily give you a shout out on next week's show, and you'll earn our eternal gratitude, which might not sound like much now, but trust me, it's worth more than you think. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, you can tweet me at 40% German, you can also get us on 40percentgerman at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40percentgerman.com and check out the articles. Uh, there's loads of different topics about life in Germany, uh, lots of cool stuff to read. All that's left to say is Dankeschön and bis bald. Tschüss! Well, you know, war kid, tell us to listen to that podcast like, and it was kind of good. Proper belter. Read. Well, I'm Gannon Yem new. Mind what you're doing. Das war Geordie.